nice to see you all on a beautiful summer day. Thank you for coming uh, to our latest installation of the you're tuning in virtually. Uh, we'll be able to ask questions uh, at the end of the program. Um, we'll also have a mic uh, roving here for people who ask questions in person. Um, also a reminder that uh, our galleries are open. So uh, please uh, take a moment to look at some of the new exhibits that we've installed uh, and get a preview for coming attractions uh, as we finish our our major capital campaign project that's uh, supposed to open in the spring. Um, also, uh, the book signings uh, will be directly outside this door uh, in the hallway. Um, so just be sure to line up there for, for that. Um, a couple of programs that are coming up uh, that you might want to know about. Uh, the next uh, version of our Between the Lines book club uh, will be Saturday, August 28th at 10.30 a.m. That'll be here uh, in the Halsey Hall, um, where our education team will be discussing uh, Big Stone Gap uh, by Adriana Trigiani. Um, and some of you might remember this was actually made into a film in 2015 that had Ashley Judd and Whoopi Goldberg in it. Uh, on Thursday, September 9th at 7.30 p.m., we will have uh, our Violins of Hope concert. Uh, this is in partnership with the Richmond Symphony, uh, and that will be at Richmond's Cathedral of the Sacred Heart. This is a partnership between uh, VMHC, uh, the Virginia Holocaust Museum, and the Black History Museum and Cultural Center of Virginia. Uh, violins are being shown at all three locations. Uh, at the concert, we will have a uh, special guest, uh, Ashvi Weinstein, uh, who is an Israeli violin maker uh, and who helped broker uh, these violins, to, excuse me, to come to the US. Uh, so um, I hope you all be able to attend. Uh, this will be the first of, of two concerts that we do while this exhibit is up. And if you haven't had a chance uh, to see the exhibit here, please take a few moments to do that. Uh, one level above us. It's it's really stunning. Uh, on Friday, September 10th at noon, uh, we will have the next curator conversation. Uh, this will be a virtual program. Our own Paige Newman uh, will explore Virginia's beer history through recipes, advertisements, photographs of local watering holes and other beer related artifacts. Uh, and just that will be a preview of coming attractions. We're actually going to have uh, a major exhibition on the history of alcohol in Virginia as part of our reopening in the spring. So stay tuned for that. Uh, and then finally, our next banner lecture uh, will be September 2nd at noon. Robert Watson will be here to talk about his book, Escape, the story of the Confederacy's infamous Libby prison in the Civil War's largest jailbreak. So something of, of local interest there. But today we're gonna to talk about the Battle of the Wilderness. At the outset of the Battle of the Wilderness in 1864, the stakes could not have been higher for the future of the United States. General Robert E. Lee's Army of the Northern Virginia still remained capable of defeating the Army of the Potomac and driving it back across the Rapidan River. 
Historian John Reeves' new book, A Fire in the Wilderness, The First Battle Between Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee, chronicles the initial bloody showdown between two of the most celebrated military leaders of the Civil War. John Reeves has been a teacher, an editor, and writer for more than 25 years. The Civil War in particular has been his passion since he first read Bruce Catton's American Heritage Picture History of the Civil War. I think I had that as well. As an elementary school student in the 1960s, please give a warm welcome to John Reeves. Well, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here with you today. And um, so today we'll talk about the Battle of the Wilderness. And um, I'm basically going to do three things. The first thing that I would like to do is uh, discuss a little bit why I wrote this book, because there are a few elements to it that are different. It's not a traditional military history. So as we go into some of the details of why I wrote the book, um, you'll, you'll learn a little bit more about uh, the wilderness. Secondly, and maybe of most interest, is the clash between Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. The wilderness was the first time these two faced off against one another on the battlefield. And I think it's significant because we can really kind of assess how they performed against each other without all the myths that surrounded them in subsequent you know, history. And, and also as the uh, Overland campaign went on and as the war came to an end, uh, Lee had fewer and fewer men and resources. And so you, one might argue that it wasn't quite the, the same sort of uh, matchup, but this was the first time and they were maybe at their fullest strength that they would be uh, for the remainder of the war. And then finally, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the experience of ordinary soldiers uh, during the war and, um, and one, one soldier in particular. Here's a map for us to get ourselves oriented a little bit. Um, I'm sure some of you have been out to the wilderness. It's a, it's a really fascinating battlefield uh, to visit. And you can see the orange turnpike is uh, the, the northern border. And then down below, you'll see the orange plank road. And then connecting uh, somewhat of them is the, uh, the Brock Road going um, vertically. Um, the, the wilderness was fought on May 5th and May 6th, 1864, and one of the most horrific battles in American history. Um, Ulysses S. Grant in his memoirs wrote, more desperate fighting has not been witnessed on this continent than that of the 5th and 6th of May. So you know, that's a pretty strong statement. And essentially, um, just to give you just a brief, brief uh, summary of what happened before we go into more details. Um, the, the Union Army crossed the Rapidan River on May 4th, 1864, and Grant was going to try to turn Lee's right. Um, but unfortunately, he gets bogged down in the wilderness, this kind of unforgiving uh, wilderness and wood, wooded area. And um, that's where they fight over the course uh, of two days. As we've mentioned already, the stakes really couldn't have been any higher. If, if Lee had lost, it would have been probably the end of the Confederacy. 
Um, but Lee still possessed the capability in May of 1864 of defeating the Union Army, just as he had defeated the Union Army one year earlier at Chancellorsville and driving them back across the Rapidan River. This would have been a disaster for the Union, right? Because 1864 was an election year. So Abraham Lincoln was coming up for, imagine going on, on, out on the campaign and, you know, sorry about that, uh, the loss in the, the spring campaign. It would have been a politically disastrous for him um, if, if, if that had been a failure. And so both Grant and Lincoln believed that had they lost, um, or at the very least been driven back over the Rapidan River, had they lost... Um, it would have been pretty indefensible and probably would have led to some sort of negotiated peace in uh, after November 1864, which could have resulted in the independence of the of the CSA, so the Confederate States of America. So the the stakes couldn't have been higher as these two um, faced one another. So one final summary, and then we'll move forward. Is that so? So Lee surprised Grant. In the wilderness, there were a lot of there are a lot of uh, reversals over the course of two days, but ultimately very costly in casualties. The Union would lose seventeen thousand six hundred and sixty-six. That sounds like a very precise figure. Um, it's just an official number. The Union probably lost considerably more than that, and the South probably lost about. 11,000 or so, and that's a more recent estimate. At the time, it was thought that they had maybe lost less than that. Um, but very, very costly battle, very horrific battle, as we're going to see in a moment. So why did I write this book? I've, we've, in my introduction, it was mentioned that I've been reading about the Civil War since I was a little boy, right? And um, the Battle of the Wilderness in particular always seemed horrible to me, right? Because fires broke out during the, during the course of the battle. And that just seemed just one added degree of horror to what was already a difficult thing, right? Fighting a battle and then you've got fires breaking out uh, at different points. And you can imagine what it must have been to be wounded and have the flames encroaching. So here's a famous uh, image of, of the, the fires that, that broke out in the wilderness. Um, this was a danger that the soldiers were aware of, right? This was a soldier, the the, a, a danger they were aware of. In fact, fires had broken out at Chancellorsville the year before, which was also fought in the vicinity of the wilderness. And that um, they were sitting around the campfires. I've mentioned this in the book. Some of them were sitting around the campfires and said, I just, you know, we don't want fires breaking out tomorrow because say you sprained your ankle or you got shot in the leg or something and you were on the ground as a couple of these men are and the fires are encroaching, you wouldn't really be able to escape, right? 200 or so Union soldiers died in that way. So you can imagine, I can't think of anything more horrific um, and that was something I wanted to explore in this book, um, is to just really come face to face with some of this horror and what it must have been like. This image, I should add, is from the sketch artist named Alfred Wode. And um, he was there um, with the Union Army in the wilderness. And he drew this probably 
either witnessed it or was told about it by a, a soldier. Um, but he was there and it was real time. And then he sent that image that was a sketch. It was sent up to New York City and then they did an engraving of it and it appeared in one of the uh, popular weeklies just one month later in June of 1864. Um, but it's very, very powerful image, I think. And um, you can see the, uh, a, a wounded soldier being taken off the field in a blanket um, and a stretcher. And um, probably one of the more uh, significant images of, of that battle. So another, another reason why I wanted to write this book is that I wanted to look at the experience of wounded soldiers um, during the Battle of the Wilderness. So I had, when I was uh, in my reading uh, that, it, that got me interested in this, I had read two books, one by Margaret Leach called Reveille in Washington. Some of you may be familiar with that one. And then another one by Bruce Catton um, that was um, A Stillness at Appomattox. And in both books, they, she, they talk about the experience of wounded soldiers in the wilderness because they had to be brought from the wilderness, which is what, roughly 20 miles or so west of Fredericksburg. They had to be brought to Fredericksburg and then they had to be brought to Belle Plaine, which was a port along the Potomac, and then brought up to the general hospitals in Washington, DC. So this was quite an ordeal. And I felt like I really wanted to understand that a little bit better. What did it feel like to uh, be involved with that. I'm sure some of you have had broken bones before, right? Um, particularly, say, a broken jaw. Some of these soldiers were in wagons on bad roads being hauled with their broken bones and their injuries going up and down on these on these uh, trails to uh, roads to to Fredericksburg, you know, you can only imagine the suffering, right? So um, I wanted to understand that. I'm also was interested in medicine too, so I write a little bit about that in the book, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that too. Um, but I have a um, chapter in the book called "The Great Army of the Wounded," and um, there were seven thousand wounded soldiers that were evacuated from the wilderness and brought to Fredericksburg. And then some of those would eventually be brought up to Washington, DC. So 7,000 soldiers, about 800 vehicles. And the, the line of uh, vehicles and wounded soldiers went for seven miles. Um, so you can only, it's a, it's a huge uh, operation. Um, and it happened on uh, the evening after, the evening of the day after the Battle of the Wilderness, May 7th, and it took a couple of days to get them there. Took about 30 hours, I should say, to get them to Fredericksburg. So it was a very, very long ordeal. Um, sadly, some of the soldiers, about um, 950 or so soldiers had to be left behind. So imagine fighting for your country in this bloody battle and then being just left there. Um, there just weren't enough vehicles to, to bring them um, to Fredericksburg. And then unfortunately they had a version of triage that was done and the most hopeless cases were left behind. Um, and so of the 950, probably half or so died. Um, some were captured um, by the rebels who, who had control of that area, at least temporarily um, after the battle when 
Grant moves on to Spotsylvania Courthouse. So um, the experience of the wounded was 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 very um, very gruesome. One of the things that um, actually I have a nice photograph of one of the hospitals in Fredericksburg, um, and you can see it's a very it's a sort of a clean image. You can kind of see uh, the faces and, and see what it must have been like. Um, But one of one of the things that um, I write about in the world about the wilderness is that as bad as it was to be wounded in 1864, it was far worse to be wounded in 1862. So after the Second Battle of Bull Run, 3,000 soldiers were just left in the field for several days without any treatment whatsoever. Um, and Americans felt like this is unacceptable, right? And so there were there were major reforms done between 1862 and 1864. So by time of 1864 in the book, you know, it's a little better. So what did they improve? One of the things that they improved was the ambulance service. So their ability to get people who would fell in battle and get them to a field hospital, they had had a they created a dedicated uh, outfit for that. Um, and they also improved the field hospitals. So it's um, it's not funny, but it's sort of amusing that in 1862, oftentimes the people who were supposed to be uh, manning the ambulances um, were were drunk, and they were drinking the whiskey that was meant for the wounded soldiers, um, and that some of the nurses had actually been musicians. Uh, for the the regiment, so things had really been done bad. But they did they did really make a marked improvement. The one the one weakness of the reforms, though the medical reforms, was that piece that I was telling you about getting the soldiers from the battlefield up to DC, um, because that's where the general hospitals were, and that's where the best surgeons and the best medical supplies and the you know consultants and and these much more robust treatment, right? In the field, they were just more or less kind of doing uh, some quick and dirty uh, operations to make sure people survived um, and, and then get them up to give, get greater care. So um, that was an issue that I wanted to um, explore in this book. This photo I should add, I should add was taken in on May 20th. And um, this is not really, um, this isn't really in my book, but, um, you can see that there's a, a female in the in the doorway. Her name was Abby Hopper Gibbons, and she was an abolitionist who volunteered as a nurse for the Sanitary Commission. Um, so you can see her. Um, and this is one of those hospitals that they, I think, the Sanitary Commission created. Um, Fredericksburg became sort of just one vast hospital uh, uh, during the initial movements of the uh, Overland Campaign. Okay, one final reason why I wrote this book, which is a little unique, and that is I had, I'm familiar with this famous quote by Frederick Douglass. After the Civil War, he gave a presentation, he gave an address at Arlington, Lee, Robert E. Lee's former estate, and, and Frederick Douglass said, we must never forget that victory to the rebellion meant death to the Republic. We must never forget that the loyal soldiers who rest beneath this sod flung themselves between the nation 
and the nation's destroyers. So one of the things I wanted to explore in this book is that many times the Civil War is presented as sort of a both sides were honorable um, in, in that sort of way. And I think there's a lot of truth to that too. Um, but there was also a fight to save the Union. And I wanted to understand, well, what did that look like? What did that entail? Why were these guys fighting? Why were they willing to sacrifice their lives? Many of these guys were young, 19, 20. The main character in the story is a substitute. He was too young to be drafted, but he signed up as a substitute. Just 19, very small, like five foot six, um, and, and very slight and pale. And so, you know, why would, would someone um, volunteer to do this? So that was one of the things I, I looked wanted to look at. And um, there's a... In general, the way I approached it was, what did this cost? Whether it be money or sacrifice or, or uh, uh, losses. And the great poet Walt Whitman said, what will the America of the future? So he says, will the America of this future, will this vast rich union ever realize what itself cost back there after all? So Whitman is asking that question, right? That, you know, we often forget, but th this was blood and treasure that was expended. And, and that's one of the things that the book tries to explore. One of the uh, metaphors or symbols that a lot of the more literate soldiers um, often referred to was they, they compared the Battle of the Wilderness to Dante's Inferno. And uh, in some respects, it's it's a good, pretty good metaphor, right? There's there's flames and there's suffering, and um, and I also like it as a symbol too because the wilderness was something that the Union Army had to pass through in order to save the Republic, just like Dante had to pass through the Inferno to eventually get to Paradise, right? Um, so there's a sort of a, a parallel or a comparison there. And there's also the, the, um, the inferno or hell is a punishment. And there were some 19th century figures that felt America was being punished for its sins because of the horror. Um, we tend to not look at the world that way nowadays, but I think that that was very much a 19th century way of looking at things. Lincoln in his second inaugural famously talks about you know, hey, I hope it doesn't happen, but if this were to go on longer, then that's what God's plan is, right? So um, that was very much a 19th century way of viewing the world, um, and it's worth considering. So those are some of the reasons why I wrote the book, and those are some of the big themes that you find in the book. Now I would like to sort of return to kind of looking at the the, the sort of the central matchup, which is uh, Robert E. Lee versus Ulysses S. Grant. I think I'll temporarily go back to the map just so you all are oriented. I should add, by the way, just this is where this was the what the battle looked like at approximately 1 p.m. on May 5th, 1864. And this was where the battle started with uh, Governor Warren's Fifth Corps. Uh, against Richard Ewell's uh, uh, corps. And uh, they began at around one, one, one o'clock and it went from there. 
the view of Robert E. Lee and Ulysses X. Grant has changed, right, over time. Robert E. Lee in particular was uh, became sort of a mythical character after his death um, for about 100 years or so. He could really do no wrong. And um, in fact, he's, he, he was so blameless that when people looked at his loss at Gettysburg, they had to say, well, Lee couldn't have lost Gettysburg. Someone had to be responsible for it, and then they blame Longstreet for it. Um, and um, so Lee was sort of became this mythical character after the war. That's changed a little bit right now, obviously. Um, but I think that the change in our reevaluation of Robert E. Lee has been more about related to his role in secession and his role as abandoning his oath and, and some of these other issues. But I, I think it's probably his military reputation remains quite strong. Um, and, and people still have very high regard for that. Um, Grant, on the other hand, has, his reputation has sort of ebbed and flowed over the years, right? Initially after the war, he was seen as a hero. But then as the lost cause took on more prominence first in the South and then in the North, um, Grant's reputation went down, right? Part of the lost cause, well, was that the South would have won if it had had more resources and that the only reason the North won is that they had so much more men and resources and et cetera, an endless supply. And the flip side of that was Grant was a butcher and he, he had the will and the wherewithal to just keep pounding away. And so Grant's reputation suffered for many years uh, as a result of that view of him as a butcher. More recently, though, I think uh, Grant's reputation has improved. I think many of you are probably familiar with Ron Chernow's famous book on Grant, and 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 he he's a very favorable uh, opinion of Grant. And I think most historians now are are well, I will say more and more historians have a favorable view of Grant than they did previously. But as I mentioned earlier, I think I wanted to um, compare the two because. Um, it's nice to be able to go back in time and look at how they performed and just, I tried to focus mainly on primary sources and not get wrapped up in some of the uh, mythology that has happened over the years. And, and that would just kind of consult what they were writing at the time. For example, um, this isn't in my talk, but I, I, I will at least mention it. Um, some of Lee's officers were critical of his performance in the wilderness, that he made a couple of mistakes. Um, for example, on the second day, um, Lee um, had his men attack a, a, a well-defended position um, on the Brock Road, at the Brock and Orange Plank Road intersection. And the assault turned out to be a disaster. And, and one of his... Uh, general said that that assault never should have happened. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's interesting when you read that contemporary uh, view of Lee that is more critical than perhaps some of the more subsequent uh, takes that are often more favorable and more, uh, like I said, more, more myth-making. So one of the things I'm going to do in order for us to kind of compare the two I thought I would look at some episodes, two episodes for each person, one episode for each person, and kind of take a closer look and, 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 and see how, how they performed under pressure. So the first one I thought we would talk about is what is known as the Lee to the Rear episode, 
which happened in the wilderness on the morning of May 6th, uh, 1864. Just to give you a little bit of background, um, Lee spent the first day in the wilderness with his, his Corps Commander A.P. Hill, and he was basically uh, situated at the Orange Plank Road. So where the battle broke out further north on the Turnpike, Orange Turnpike, Lee wasn't there. He was further south with A.P. Hill. And A.P. Hill's men faced Hancock's uh, Corps that day, and Hill's men fought quite well with Lee nearby for, for guidance, I, I presume. And um, Hill's men fought quite well and were lucky, though, to be saved by nightfall because Hancock had considerably more men. Um, and it felt like uh, Hill was on the verge of, of getting uh, pushed away um, on the evening of May 5th, uh, but saved by darkness. That's important. You need to hold that thought because... <laughs> Hill decided, perhaps wrongly in retrospect, to let his men just sleep where they fell. And that Hill's attitude was, these guys are tired, they fought well, just let them be, they need to rest. Longstreet will be up in the morning and he can take over, is what he thought. Um, unfortunately, Longstreet was late on the morning of May 6th. And that is the background for the lead the rear episode. At 5 a.m. on May 6, Hancock attacks down the Orange Plank Road, and Hill's men are just in no position to withstand it, and they run. And so it looks like Lee is on the verge of a disaster for the first time, really, in the Civil War, anything of that magnitude that his, his army is in is about to be destroyed. Um, and it almost seemed like it's over, right? And then just in the worst moment, this is like out of a Hollywood movie, just as it looked like it was curtains for the Confederate States of the America, who comes up the orange plank road, but none other than Longstreet. So just literally in the nick of time. And his Texas brigade comes through the Widow Taps field and gets ready to cross the Widow Taps field. And who comes by to lead these men across the Widow Taps field, Robert E. Lee. So this is the, known as the lead of the rear episode, and the Texas soldiers are like, no, you can't, you can't lead a brigade into battle. More likely than not, Lee probably would have been killed, or at least wounded, right? Um, leading a brigade into battle was a dangerous business and not the place for the head of the Confederate army. Um, so the... the Confederate soldiers take his, his horse and pull him to the rear, and Lee does not go forward. Um, the Texas Brigade lost roughly half their men. Um, they lost 457 men out of roughly 850, and Lee likely would have been one of them. Um, but it, it was, it's became sort of part of the mythology of Lee after the Civil War. So I think it's fascinating that this, one of the more famous stories or anecdotes about Lee had its roots in the wilderness, right? And that there were two elements of it. One is this Christ-like figure, Lee, leading his men into battle. He's almost like a knight from the Middle Ages. Look at that image of him. I mean, to me, he kind of looks like an Old Testament character, you know, of, of leading his troops. 
But then also significantly, his men were protecting him. They kind of identified him with the Confederate cause, right? So you have this union between the soldiers and their commander, which I think is really significant. And I personally think it's an element of the myth that grew up around Lee after his death. And this was one, I think, good example of that. Um, one of the things that I write about in the book, oh, I should say too that um, Longstreet in kind of a, a, a sly aside in his book said that by that point, Robert E. Lee was off his balance. Um, and um, I, I think it's interesting because Lee has a reputation for being a cool customer at all times. And yet at this time, he's impulsive and emotional. Some even said that he was in tears. Um, and it, it, it was, it was basically a, what it was Robert E. Lee seeing everything about to disappear. Um, so I thought that that was an interesting moment in the wilderness and maybe the first time Lee had been put in that situation and it was by Hancock, but also by Grant. Right. So, um, so that was, um, this, this painting, by the way, was destroyed in a fire. It was in the um, Texas Capitol. Um, and unfortunately, it doesn't exist. This is a photograph of it, but I think it's a, a remarkable image. I wanted to share it nonetheless, um, but we, we you can't see it today, unfortunately. One thing that I think is interesting because there's a, there's a rivalry between Grant and, and Lee. And so Grant in his memoirs, uh, talks about this. He doesn't talk about Robert E. Lee. He talks about Albert Sidney Johnston, who some of you may know. Albert Sidney Johnston tried to lead a brigade at the Battle of Shiloh. And in, and in, in doing so, he gets shot, but he dies on the first day of the Battle of Shiloh. And Grant said, you know, I'm paraphrasing. Grant said, you can call it brave, but it doesn't seem particularly smart. Um, and that if you're in a position where your commanding general needs to lead a brigade, then you're in trouble. Um, so I kind of feel like that's Grant's sort of subtle way of taking a dig, but I think he's right, right? I mean, you don't want the commanding general in chief uh, <laughs> leading troops across the Widow Taps field. Uh, and, and Grant picks up on that. They had a nice rival, well, I don't know how nice it was, but they were both, they were both saw each other as kind of threats to their, their legacies and would often make remarks like that. Um, one, I'll, I'll just mention one other element that of the lead of the rare episode. It's, it's been in the news re recently, surprisingly. Um, some of you may be aware of this controversy at the University of Texas about the eyes of Texas, uh, the, the song, The Eyes of Texas. Are you from, is anyone familiar with that? Um, I'll just give you a brief thing, but um, they have a fight song called The Eyes of Texas. And some people at the University of Texas don't want that to be the fight song anymore. And others are, but it's our history, it's our legacy, et cetera. It's our heritage. Um, and one element for the people who don't like The Eyes of Texas song, fight song, is that it, it come, It was supposedly something that Robert E. Lee said. Um, and so people didn't like the fact that it was related to Robert E. Lee. And apparently Lee said something after the war, like, the eyes of the South are upon you. 
And then someone else later said, the eyes of Texas are upon you. And that became the fight song, something like that. Um, in fact, the eyes of Texas come from the Battle of the Wilderness, not after the war. And it was not something that Lee said. It was something that the commander of the Texas Brigade said. And he said to his men, as they're going into battle, the eyes of Robert E. Lee are upon you. And so that's where it comes from. I mean, we can debate whether that connection is enough to overturn the song. There were some other elements to the song that people found offensive, so there's more to it than that. But I just thought it was interesting that it's still in the news today and that there's strong feelings about this. Um, and it was related to this, this particular episode. Um, so that's Lee in the, in the wilderness. And I think uh, the Lee to the rear moment was um, one of his greatest I will say, and then we'll move on to, to um, we'll move on to Ulysses S. Grant. In tremendous credit to Robert E. Lee is this: not only was he so emotional and, and off his balance, as Longstreet described it, but Lee recovered real quickly and was the one who sent someone off to explore to see if there was a way of getting around Hancock's left later that afternoon, which they did, in fact. So Lee recovered quite quickly, and it was a long day in those woods. You know, I, you know I'm know, i about the same age that Lee was uh, in the wilderness, so he had only had a few hours sleep, and then he had to, you know, a whole day. That's that's a lot. That's a demanding, um, that's a demanding day. So um, I think the incredible ability to bounce back from the setback and then resume his his role as the leader. Um, I think it's so, oh, uh-oh, what have I done? Ah, um, so, um, so that's worth uh, noting. So now I wanna briefly talk about Ulysses S. Grant because one of his most famous stories or one of the things most associated with him also happened in the wilderness. And that is Grant's famous night march to Spotsylvania Courthouse. So imagine the battle of the wilderness from Grant's perspective. You take on tremendous casualties. He's lost probably north of 18,000 soldiers. Um, on, the, on just May 6th alone, in the late afternoon, Longstreet almost turns his left. And then at, at nightfall, they, the, uh, Gordon almost turns his right. Um, and the, the, the army has been bludgeoned for two solid days. Things aren't looking great. Um, but on, on the afternoon of May 6th, Grant makes the decision, we're going to keep going and we're gonna keep moving south. And he makes the determination on the afternoon of May 6th to go to Spotsylvania Courthouse. He issues the order on the morning of May 7th to his commanders that, you know, get ready, we're going. And he, he orders a night march. So it was done on the night of May 7th. And I think that this shows tremendous moral courage on Grant's part, but I also think it's probably one of the most significant decisions of the Civil War. Because in that moment, Grant illustrated what was necessary to win. And that was, we can do this longer than Robert E. Lee can. Um, and he was right. And it just took a lot of, it took a lot of strength, though, to, to do it, to take on the losses and to keep moving. 
Uh, one of the things that I was kind of shocked by is that Grant's losses in the wilderness were about the same as Hooker's losses at Chancellorsville. But Hooker decided, like, I've had enough. Um, and Grant said, I'm just getting started. Um, and I think that that's a, a key um, difference. Um, one, one thing that I write in the book comparing Hooker to Grant is um, I write, unlike General Hooker at Chancellorsville, who had said he had lost faith in Hooker, Grant never lost faith in himself or the campaign. So um, it, it, it shows you that, you know, that he, Grant was a strong character. One of the things that the, the soldiers often felt, uh, felt was odd about Grant is for most of the two days, he sat on a stump whittling, you know, um, not saying much. And it didn't look like he was doing a lot, um, but he was thinking um, and he was obviously talking to his, his staff um, and, and, and planning. Um, but, you know, he was available, he was present, but it didn't look like he was he was doing a whole lot. And some of them said like, oh, he just sits around whittling all day. Uh, and um, apparently, and this was very un-Grant-like, but he had some very uh, fine gloves that he wore at the opening of the wilderness campaign and he wore the gloves um, and then he was whittling later and he kind of tore them to shreds from his 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 whittling and and that was it for the gloves um but um so yeah I, I bring up that episode one 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 additional thought about the um one additional thought about uh the wilderness which shows you there's always two sides to it as I said, I think that the decision to do the night march was an important decision. Nonetheless, the night march turned out to be a debacle um, on the way to Spotsylvania Courthouse. It was dark. The men got lost. Um, they had a hard time finding where they were going. Um, Lee was able to beat um, the Union to Spotsylvania Courthouse. And, um, and of course, that's why that battle was fought, right? So if, if the Union had got there first, um, it would have put Lee in a pretty bad situation. But um, so it was an important decision to keep going south. It was a symbolic decision. But from, a, from an execution point of view, that night march could have probably been a little better. Um, and um, if those of you have been down there know that, um, uh, or up there, sorry, I'm from Washington, D.C. It's down there for me. Uh, uh, for it, it, it's pretty hard to find your way in the dark in the woods, and there wasn't a moon that night. So, um, but in any event, so those were two um, two episodes that I think are, are worth um, thinking about and comparing um, between the two. Okay, so we've got a little bit more time. I'd like to now talk about... Um, the, I'm going to talk a little bit about the ordinary soldiers um, in the in the wilderness, and I often one of the things I thought when I was doing my research for this is that it was really a pretty being a Union soldier in the spring of 1864 was a pretty grim thing <laughs> to be. Uh, 
in May of 1864, if you're in the Union Army, a lot of things could happen to you and most of them were bad, right? So obviously death would be the worst thing that could happen to you. But it was even worse than that, right? Because a lot of young men at that time, a lot of Americans at that time, felt that the ideal death was to be was to die at home, surrounded by your friends and your family and your parents and what have you. Um, the there's a there's a great book called This Republic of Suffering. Some of you uh, may be familiar with, but it, it talks about the good death, right? Literally, the worst death you could be would be um, anonymous, unknown, in the woods, uh, left to die um, in the wilderness. And so you can imagine that that was on their minds as they were walking uh, through that that the, the, those that treacherous uh, landscape. Another thing that was not a great thing to have happen to you was to be wounded. Obviously, you know, wound, being wounded seems like it could be good if it gets you out of the army and lets you go home. But the problem is a wound in and of itself often could be a death sentence because you might die of an infection. Or in the case of the person I write about in this book, he died of what's called a secondary hemorrhage. So he survived the battle and was alive for, you know, in his case, I think it was about 10 days or so, eight days. Um, um, but then the secondary hemorrhage occurs, the, the artery breaks or something nicks it, and then he dies. So, um, and then, so there's being killed, there's being wounded. And then what many thought was the worst thing that could happen was to be taken captive. Um, that being captured back then was not anything you'd look forward to. Some people wished they'd rather die than be taken prisoner. Um, and many, as some of you probably know, many of the um, many of the soldiers died of you know bowel diseases and intestinal diseases. Um, who and Andersonville existed at this time, and many of the the captives from the wilderness were brought down to Andersonville prison and, and the suffering was incredible. 13,000 uh, Union soldiers died at Andersonville. One writer said that Andersonville was a story of cruelties, starvation, vermin, heartless disregard of life and unparalleled diabolism, which puts the blush every loyal man. Um, so these are, you know, you can see that this was a pretty, this was pretty rough business for um, the ordinary soldier. The ordinary soldier I write about in the book was named Private William Reeves. Now, I'm not related to him, despite the similarities in names. Um, he, William Reeves was from Victor, New York, upstate New York. He was just 19 years old. He was a substitute. Like I said, I'm not related to him. I chose him because I wanted to explore the battle through somebody who was wounded, made the journey from uh, the wilderness all the way up to Washington. And then if there was this, and then I saw, I was able to find this person who also was buried in Arlington National Cemetery. He was in fact the fourth soldier uh, buried at Arlington. And I thought that thread was a great way to examine this battle and, and look at it through his eyes. Now, when I say through his eyes, unfortunately, Private William Reeves didn't leave any letters behind and he didn't leave a diary behind. But what he did leave behind is there's a there was a really good medical file on him, on his, on his uh, 
on his uh, injury. Basically, he was shot through the, the cheek, through the left cheek, and the mini ball came out the right cheek. And at first glance, it should not have, it wasn't a, a terrible injury. Um, but unfortunately, um, they performed surgery in the wilderness in one of the field hospitals to remove um, bone fragments. And um, and like I said, I had the medical files. That's how I learned all this. And um, unfortunately, what we have nowadays are x-rays, right? And a doctor would be able to use x-rays to make sure they got all of the bone fragments. But with with the surgeons in these field hospitals, they used to use their, they had to use their eyes and their hands uh, and get the biggest fragments. But they probably missed a smaller fragment. And I consulted with a doctor, and he thought it was possible that one of these sort of fragments that you couldn't see nicked an artery, and that's what caused the secondary hemorrhage. Um, but we don't know for sure. But anyway, leaves, we have a medical file for him. And then I was able to get his military file too from the National Archives. So I was able to get a little bit. And then also I wanted to write about Arlington. I think Arlington is an interesting piece, right? Because as you know, Arlington was the home of Robert E. Lee, right? And that the, the Union Army had taken over the Arlington estate for defensive purposes, but then they took it over for good and they turned it into um, uh, they, they turned it into land for freedmen. And but they also built the Arlington Cemetery on Lee on those grounds. And so the 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 general that they were fighting in the wilderness, they were also using his estate to bury the troops that fell uh, during the Overland campaign. And I thought the kind of symbolism of that was worth considering. Um, and the and Arlington National Cemetery was founded right in the midst of this wilderness campaign. So on the day after the Battle of the Bloody Angle, which was, a, was fighting during the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse, um, which was on May 12th, Arlington was found on Friday, May 13th, um, the ne very next day. And this fellow, Private William Reeves, who died at Stanton General Hospital, um, on May 13th, he was buried on May 14th at Arlington National Cemetery. So looking at it through the eyes of Reeves, I thought was interesting. There's his grave. It's still there at Arlington National Cemetery. He was buried in what is now known as Section 27. And I think this is interesting too. At first, Section 27 was for... Um, you know, poor white soldiers, um, that, the, the first burials at Arlington. Basically, I don't know how familiar you are with Washington, D.C., but there was a cemetery in Washington, D.C. called the Old Soldiers' Home, and Lincoln had a cottage there uh, as well. But that filled up literally on May 12th, and so they needed more ground, and that's why they went to Arlington on May 13th. Um, and then he was buried there on May 14th. Originally, white soldiers... But then later, Section 27 became the place where they buried African-American Union soldiers and local freedmen from Washington, D.C. So if you go to Section 27 now, most of the names there are African-American, except for, you know, William Christman and, and William Blatt and Private William Reeves and, you know, a handful of other white soldiers who were initially buried there. This is an interesting story, I think. So why didn't they keep 
putting people in, why do they keep putting the Union soldiers in Section 27? Well, the person responsible for it, Quartermaster General Meggs, was, came, came round Arlington one day and said, these guys, what are you putting them out here for? I want them in Mrs. Lee's garden. Um, he wanted to make Robert and, and Mary Lee never forget. And he also felt by burying Union soldiers closer to the home, it would be more, more difficult to remove them later, right? It would be more unlikely for the Lees to ever return to Arlington. And so that's why, and you know, the flip side of that was the guys who made the decision to put the first ones, section 27 is about, I don't know, 20 minute walk from the, the main house. The guys who made that decision were living in the main house. They were soldiers, right? They didn't want bodies, you know, <laughs> under their feet, so to speak. You know what I mean? So it's just funny, the human element to the decision-making. Right? So it, it took Megs to come up and say, no, -uh, that's not what I meant. I want the, I want the uh, burials closer to the home. Um, but anyway, so, that, so I think that that's one kind of element of my book that I thought was maybe a new dimension and that was that oftentimes the founding of Arlington isn't integrated to the actions of the Overland campaign, but they were intimately connected. They were deeply connected. And, and as I said, you know, you could, I think it's fair to say that the fighting at the bloody angle at Spotsylvania courthouse was probably one of the most horrific days in American military history, right? One of the most awful. I mean, it was raining. They fought for almost for 24 hours. They were hitting each other over the head with their rifles. One of the worst days. And Arlington was founded several hours later that morning. Um, the first burials went in. Um, I just think it's an interesting juxtaposition um, and not entirely coincidental. Although I'm not, I'm not saying that Megs looked at the action at bloody angle and said, "Okay, today." Although you know. Um, this is an aside, and then, oh, I want to have time for questions, so uh, maybe I'll stop there, but um, just one anecdote. There's a story about the founding of Arlington that is unfortunately not true, but it's too bad it's not true, and it involves Megs and Lincoln driving around the Arlington estate and um, Lincoln seeing some dead bodies, some dead soldiers on the grounds, Union soldiers, and Lincoln saying something like, oh, this horrible war. And Meg said, I'm not going to stand for it. And he gets out of the carriage and says, I want those bodies buried on this estate. So Lee will never come back. So it's very dramatic. And it actually appears in a book. It wasn't true. Um, and uh, unfortunately, it was a much more bureaucratic decision than that. But um, there's a lot of those sort of myths that, that emerge. Um, anyway. Why don't, we, why don't I stop there? Um, and I'd like to have time for questions. Um, I'm happy to stay a little, if I, I didn't know if I went too long, but um, does anyone have some questions? Yes, sir. We're gonna get a microphone yeah. for you. Uh, to me, that picture that you described of the General Grant sitting during the battle, whittling and tearing up the glove. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a picture of fury. It's a picture of intensity. Mm. It's a picture of personal um, 
involvement that he's he's focused on whittling he's he's cutting the wood off that original stick or whatever it was um it's a way to use some of the tremendous energy intellectual energy emotional energy um personal uh, energy as the person responsible for his troops um so to me that that is quite a, a picture that to me is a very interesting picture a very important picture of uh of the person and the general uh i yeah. thank you for that yeah you know what i couldn't agree more because you know grant was extremely brave and he also came up you know he started the civil war as a colonel of a regiment and he went all the way up the ladder so no one would deny that he would happily lead a brigade or a regiment even or a division um but in a battle like the wilderness he needed to be in a central location so all of his corps commanders knew where he was and he needed to be able to talk to his staff and he was thinking you know and so yeah he was sitting he was whittling but he was lost in his thought but he was he was thinking and planning and that's how he did his work you know so couldn't agree more yes oh he's going to get you the microphone So is it possible that these two armies found themselves in the wilderness almost by accident? Um, but what was Grant's objective, having found himself in that situation, and what was Lee's? I mean, Lee appeared to want to outflank Grant from one, e one end or the other. So what was Grant trying to do? Just impose the greatest number of casualties on the other side? Yeah, great question, and I think so I'll try to be concise, but you've raised something that's a, a, a very important question and, and we could talk a lot about it, but I'll be, I'll be back. But basically Lee's strategy was here is as good a fight, here is as good a place to challenge Grant as any. And I'd rather fight him here than on the outskirts of Richmond. But one of Lee's big problems was is he never was quite sure whether Grant was gonna try to go around his left or his right. So he had to leave Longstreet behind until he knew for sure. And that's why he didn't have all of his three corps with him, uh, all of his three corps with him um, in the wilderness. And, it, and he had just two for May 5th and Longstreet had to come up and join him on May 6th. For Grant's part, Grant wanted to just outflank him and get between him and Richmond. And the assumption was if he could get between Lee and Richmond, it would be lights out for the CSA. That's what sort of thought. Um, but the problem was that in order for Grant to go around Lee's right, he needed to go through the wilderness. And that unfortunately, in order to stay close to his supply trains, they had to spend a night in the woods. And then Lee was able to push forward. Ironically, Lee wasn't the one who attacked. Lee put pressure on Grant, and then Grant, to very Grant-like, said, "You want to fight? Okay." It's very Clint Eastwood-like. You want to fight here? Okay. 
Uh, you know what I mean? Like he he was a very pugnacious. You know, both both Lee and Grant were aggressive commanders, and so you know Grant's attitude was, if you want to fight in the wilderness, I'll fight you in the wilderness, and he and he did. Yes, he's going to bring you the mic. Here you go, sir. Was there any consensus at the time or any kind of historical perspective as to who actually won that? Great question. And you know what? I think, unfortunately, it was a stalemate. So I, I think that probably, at least from a, a, a tactical point of view, it's really hard to say one of either one won. And you could... We could make a good case for either general. And I think that in many respects, the fact that Lee was able to withstand this tremendously large army that was almost twice as big as his was, you know, you could say, well, that's in his favor. But for Grant's part is he got his giant army across the Rapidan River and was able to keep moving south. So Lee hadn't been able to stop him. And I think in the historical context, my view is that Lee took a lot of losses in the wilderness that he couldn't replace. So in that respect, I would maybe say slightly to Grant's advantage. But I think many historians often see Lee as performing slightly better in the wilderness. And the Overland campaign certainly doesn't look like a success to a lot of historians. One last thing about that, though, which is funny and it's great to know, and that is if you read the newspapers from that time, the newspapers are making it look like the union is winning. Like everything's going lovely, you know. Um, that wasn't the case at all. I think that was a bit of wishful thinking, but also they didn't have a lot of they didn't have a lot of uh information, you know. Um so they were it was based on what they were hoping, uh, but maybe also the movements of the troops too. So, yeah. Yes. Great question, and I write about that. So the basically they take them behind the lines to um to the orange courthouse. Um and they had field hospitals there. And in my book, it'll be interesting to um and then some of them would eventually come down to Richmond um as well. But um in my book, I write about a, a Union soldier who got captured. Um, he was also one of the most famous people of the day. His name was uh, Wadsworth, uh, Brig Brigadier General Wadsworth. And um, he, was, he ended up in a Confederate field hospital. Um, he eventually died, unfortunately, of his wounds. And it just was coincidental that another Union prisoner at this Confederate hospital um, was a surgeon, and he was looking at the quality of the care, and he was saying, this isn't, what they're doing is not good. Um, so it's just sort of interesting. And you know who, of course, famously got wounded um, during the Battle of the Wilderness is Longstreet. Um, um, and I think the he survived, so the care mustn't have been too bad in his case. Um, it's funny that I didn't mention uh, the wounding of Longstreet, which is a big story of the wilderness, but there's so many of them. Any other questions? Well, I hope I didn't keep you too long. Um, I think we're just a little past one o'clock. Thank you, John.
Thank you. signing books just outside the hallway. Uh, please be sure to peruse the galleries if you get a chance, and we'll see you all in a couple of weeks on September 2nd. Thank you.